Steve Lance, your host of the Capitol Report on NTD News. If you have not done so yet, please hit that subscribe button to stay up to date with all of the latest news coming out of the nation's capital and beyond. The United States just recently concluded the 20-year war on terror in Afghanistan last summer with trillions of dollars being spent. Now the Biden administration is on its second round of military aid to Ukraine totaling in the billions without being discussed or debated by Congress. Both Democrats and Republicans have been in support of this action. However, with the prospect of funding another endless war on the backs of the American taxpayer, some questions need to be asked. Sumantra Maitra is National Security Fellow at the Center for National Interest, and we're happy to have him on to discuss. Dr. Sumantra Maitra, thank you so much for joining us on the Capitol Report. Thank you, Steve. Not too long ago, uh, we just got out of what was being called the endless war in Afghanistan, where hundreds of billions were spent. Uh, President Biden just announced another $800 million in military aid to Ukraine. Where does the aid end, and is there a discussion around what is in the best interest of the United States in terms of strategy here? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, there are three things to consider here. Number one, uh, what is the objective and end game of us giving so much aid to Ukraine? I mean, if the strategy is to bog down Russia and continue the war, then that's one thing. Then the president should come out and say that to the to the American people that, yes, we don't really care about, you know, the continuation of the war, but we are just going to essentially bleed Russia in Ukraine. That is a valid strategy, but it is not being clear. Uh, It's not being mentioned in, in, in public circle anyway. The second thing is uh, about U.S. providing the aid compared to Europe. I mean, at the end of the day, Ukraine is a war. First of all, it's not a war of, with any NATO members. Uh, it, is a war, it is a war in NATO, uh, in, in Europe, and Europe has got far more at stake in Ukraine than the United States. And they are also capable, as we know, as we have seen so much, uh, so many times, um, they're capable of providing arms, weapons, uh, medicine and food aid and money. And the third thing, as you rightly mentioned in the beginning, um, at the end of the day, an influential foreign policy decision like this should be debated uh, in the Congress. That is not what we are seeing now. That is not what what is happening. We are providing millions of dollars of aid and everything is a trade-off. We are providing that money, but we are not focusing on things which are of much more interest to us, for example, the southern border in the United States or the rise of China or inflation. Uh, So these are the things that need to be discussed. You bring up an interesting point about this being debated on the uh, on the House floor in front of Congress. So um, why do you think this is not being done? And, and to your point, is it something that is normal by by all uh, means? It would be interesting to speculate some of the reasons. Number one, if you remember just a couple of weeks back or probably like three or three weeks back, there was this debate about no fly zone over Ukraine. Uh, one of the interesting things from that was the public opinion change. Uh, the public opinion initially was not in favor of doing anything in Ukraine because that's not in our interest. The American public is far more realist uh, than, than some of the policymakers. Um, then obviously when the Russian atrocities and you know the media uh, kind of like started to highlight the Russian atrocities, uh, the public opinion changed and everyone was like, yeah, we need to go for no fly zone. But when it was explained to the American public, the support for no-fly no zone dropped because people understood that if we uh, escalate, for example, in the Ukrainian battlefield, 
Uh, there is a thing called escalation dominance. Russia has the advantage there. It's right next to Russian borders. I mean, we can continue to escalate, but they can also continue to escalate, and the war will just continue to go on. In terms of escalation, we've seen one round of 800 million, now another round of 800 million. We're crossing into the billions uh, of dollars that is, is aid that's going to essentially kill Russian soldiers. So how is that any different than sending U.S. troops in the eyes of Vladimir Putin, do you think? I, well, in the eyes of Vladimir Putin, it's not different at all. I mean, uh, if you see the Russian military journals, for example, they don't really differentiate between the European Union, NATO, the United States aid, or anything of that sort. To them, it's, a, it's an inexorable force which is just constantly moving eastward and kind of circling Russia. They, if you see the Russian military strategies, they don't really have a word for safety in the Russian language. I mean, the closest word to safety is Bezhepostnost, which means like no danger. They're constantly historically uh, in fear of being surrounded by foreign forces, given their history. Um, so in eyes of Vladimir Putin, as you rightly mentioned, there is no difference. They see this as an escalation. Uh, in our uh, strategic circles, I would imagine sending weapons is probably a little less dangerous than having active participation. But also, we need to keep in mind that at the end of the day, a war has its own momentum. I mean, if we send weapons, uh, the transfer of these weapons are, you know, it's not something which just happens by magic. You know, someone needs to go there. Someone needs to facilitate these kind of things. What if the Russians feel threatened and there is a miscalculation? What if one of their missiles strike an American or a European convoy, which is within Ukraine? So it's part of the Ukrainian battlefield. So it's within the laws of war for them to strike any kind of military uh, convoys, for example. Those are the things that we need to consider. Former President Trump injected himself for the first time um, regarding this, this conflict, calling for Russia and Ukraine to reach an agreement. From your perspective, is that possible? And what does a potential agreement look like to you? I think uh, two, two things, two things to consider here. One, theoretically, uh, this war needs to be ending with some kind of compromise. Russia is incapable. Uh, of conquering the entirety of Ukraine, which is some of us, by the way, predicted, because at the end of the day, you know, threat is a combination of will and capability. The Russians might be interested in starting like a kind of like a czarist regime or a neo-Soviet regime in the eastern parts of uh, Europe, but they are not frankly capable. They don't have the money, you know, they don't have the manpower, their technology is not that advanced. And essentially, Europe can outspend Russia. Um, so they are not capable of conquering Ukraine. Ukraine, on the other hand, given that we are not going to join the war in Russia, uh, in, in Ukraine, they're not capable of reconquering the lands they've lost either. So essentially, uh, this thing is going to continue bleeding. Like in international relations, a compromise only happens when both the sides understand that they have got no option other than a stalemate. And, you know, that the best option that they can have is to have like kind of like a compromise position where no one would be happy, relative gains. Uh, both sides would have to kind of give up something. Uh, Russia would have to give up some of their, you know, denazification rhetoric, which they've already kind of like dropped. Uh, and Ukraine would have to give up their hopes of getting some of the territories back. So President Trump is right in a way that there is there needs to be a compromise. But so far, both Russia and Ukraine think that they can't change the balance of power in the region. So I don't think a compromise is coming anytime soon. Dr. Smarsha Maitre, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Steve. A group of over 300 pilots and flight attendants is asking an appeals court to declare the federal mask mandate on airplanes permanently illegal. And United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby said today that the mask mandate for flights is not likely to return. On Monday, a federal judge in Florida struck down the mandate, which had been in place since February of 2021. 
In their appeal to keep the mask mandate away, airline workers say that TSA cannot issue a health directive that has nothing to do with transportation security. They're arguing that the mandate by the TSA violates federal safety regulations. They also argued that airplane cabins, which are now equipped with a high degree of air filtration, pose a low risk of spreading the Chinese Communist Party virus. As the dust continues to settle from the federal judge's order in Florida, ruling that the CDC's mask mandate on public transportation is unconstitutional, there are some folks that are still confused. We were able to catch up with senior counsel at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, Matt Miller, to get some perspective. Here's a look. Matt Miller, thank you so much for joining us on the Capitol Report. Thanks for having me. Matt, with regard to the CDC mask mandate on airplanes and other forms of public transportation, uh, how was a federal judge in Florida able to evaporate this seemingly overnight uh, with the snap of a finger, or was there more of a process leading up that got us to this point? Well, there was a process that started in July of last year. Um, it really comes down to separation of powers. You know, Congress passes the law, the president executes the law, and judges review whether laws are constitutional. And so uh, Judge Mazzell in Florida uh, was able to review the, the, the constitutionality of this law, and she concluded that Congress had not authorized the CDC to implement this mask mandate. So it was really just a simple separation of powers issue. It's kind of government 101. Now, Matt, if the uh, DOJ appeals this uh, judge's ruling, what is the likelihood that the mandate will be uh, reinstated? So DOJ has indicated they're going to appeal. Um, they are not going to seek an emergency stay. And so what that means for the flying public is that there is no mask mandate now or for the foreseeable future. Um, what the appeal is really about is preserving their ability to re-implement the mask mandate at some future date. And so if they are successful and they convince the 11th Circuit Federal Court of Appeals um, that Judge Mazzell ruled incorrectly, then at some future date, they'll be able to say, okay, you have to wear planes on masks again um, under this statute that we were using the first time. Has the CDC given any clear guidance as to what thresholds they're looking at for uh, when they'll officially drop these mandates? No, um, we haven't seen any metrics or any guidelines at all. Uh, like I say, they, they have decided not to seek an emergency stay of Judge Mazzell's order. So they're obviously comfortable with the flying public uh, not being forced to mask at this time. Um, it's likely that they uh, would want to impose some kind of a metrics-based system going forward. Uh, but as the judge in the ruling said, that's really for Congress to decide. It's not for the CDC to decide. Um, we're a government of enumerated powers, and Congress has not granted this agency the authority to do this. And so if they want to do it in the future, they need to go back to Congress and get that authority through a duly enacted law. You did sort of touch upon this. Um, I, I think a lot of people are confused, especially in New York, where Newark Airport, uh, no masks are needed. But at, say, JFK and LaGuardia, you do need to wear one based on city guidelines. For now, is it safe to say that once you're in the air, uh, you're not required to wear a mask, but uh, you may be subject to each city's rules once you are actually on the ground? Yeah, that's a very fair summary of where things stand. Um, obviously, uh, an airline as a private business would have the ability to require people to wear masks, but to our knowledge, none of them uh, are continuing to do that at this point. They've all indicated that they're happily dropping the mandates. Um, so yeah, if you're in the air, no masks. If you get to the airport, check and see whether or not that municipality or that locality is requiring one. Matt Miller, thank you. Thanks very much. I just want to thank everybody for listening to this episode. If you enjoy our content, please leave us a rating and a review as it really goes a long way in helping us spread the truth. Until next time, I'm your host, Steve Lance at NTD, and we'll see you soon.